Okay, come stand in front of this microphone. Now, I want you to imagine that you have just heard Ibrahim Malouf perform for the first time, and you loved it, and you're Quincy Jones. <laughs> you want me to do my Quincy yeah. Jones impersonation? Yeah. Uh, am I on? Yeah. Oh. Welcome to the third story. <laughs> I'm Leo Sidrin. Oh, Ibrahim, that really well, man. Ibrahim Malouf does not like to be limited, and certainly not by any kind of label. It's real hip. By the time he stepped onto the stage at the Montreux Jazz Festival in 2017, the 37-year-old trumpet player was already one of the most successful instrumental artists in France. Man. He had won all kinds of awards and trumpet competitions throughout the world when he was still young. He, in fact, had been a prodigy, both in Western classical and Arabic classical music. And he had made successful solo albums, too. He worked with the likes of Sting and Elvis Costello and also Archie Shepp and Wynton Marsalis. He had scored films, performed for audiences of thousands and even tens of thousands, taught at a conservatory, hosted a radio program on the French TSF Jazz Network, and helped to innovate on the trumpet. You know what I'm saying? His father, in fact, invented the four-valve quarter-tone trumpet, which allows for the playing of the kinds of melodies that are common in Arabic maqam music. And Ibrahim had used his father's instrument to help create a new sound on the trumpet that combined Western and Arabic elements. A documentary film about Ibrahim had been made for French television exploring that very subject. Malouf was celebrated as an ambassador, both of instrumental music and of Arabic music, too. He was born in Beirut to musician parents, and he was raised in France. He started studying the trumpet when he was seven. His father taught him, and although he was clearly very good from an early age, he says that his success on the instrument was more a testament to his dad's teaching than it was to any kind of natural love that he felt for the instrument. As a boy, Ibrahim was pulled between two worlds. His parents had chosen to raise their family in France to avoid the civil war in Lebanon, but the intention was not to stay there indefinitely. They always hoped to return after the civil war was over. And because of that, they listened almost exclusively to Arabic classical music in the house. His parents did everything they could to provide the kind of childhood that would accommodate a family moving back to Lebanon when the war was over. He spent much of his childhood living in a kind of bubble Little Lebanon inside of Paris. But of course, there was the outside too, the popular culture of the 80s and 90s that Malouf also discovered and loved. Like so many kids of his generation, the music and energy of Michael Jackson would have a massive influence on him. And you can feel it in his work almost from the very start. You know what I'm saying? And then in 2004, Ibrahim met a young and brilliant singer from Montreal named Lassa de Silla. And it was Lhasa who helped him to see how he might make music that could live in between the worlds of Arabic and Western pop music, or ultimately to see how he could be free to make whatever he wanted to make. So as he began to make his way as a solo artist, he was very interested in bringing together as many elements as he could, as if he might one day actually discover the perfect formula that would embody who he is in one cohesive statement. So his first album, Diasporas in 2007 set the tone for what would follow and included his reworking of the classic Dizzy Gillespie Charlie Parker song Night in Tunisia. As far back as Diasporas, Malouf demonstrated a natural comfort with cinematic music. Not only music made for the cinema, which he's done a lot of, 
but also music that evokes a movie in the mind's eye. Both on stage and on record, Malouf positions himself as the master of ceremonies. His live shows are often high-energy spectacles. He plays to sold-out arenas from Paris to Istanbul. He once played to an audience of six million people for Bastille Day in Paris. An Instagram post I found from late July of this year shows him fronting a large, brassy ensemble for what looks like an endless sea of people bouncing ecstatic in the audience. In the clip, Malouf wears sneakers, a t-shirt, and jeans, and spends as much time hyping up the audience as he does playing the horn. But then his work can also be quite refined, elegant, or introspective. This, for example, is the prelude to his Levantine Symphony No. 1 from 2018. He's a kind of constant seeker of collaboration and connection. I mean, just on his 2019 album, 40 Melodies, he found himself involved in a series of musical conversations with the likes of John Baptiste, Marcus Miller, the Kronos Quartet, Richard Bona, Arturo Sandoval, Sting, and other artists from around the world. And earlier this year, he released Queen of Sheba, a project made with Angelique Kidjo, the legendary singer from Benin. I think if there ever was such a thing as a world music artist, you could argue that it's Ibrahim Malouf. And while he doesn't reject that label, he also tells me that he refuses to be limited by it. For Ibrahim Malouf, world is not enough. To be honest, I'm not aware of another instrumental artist who occupies quite the same space in any country or culture. And yet, the name Ibrahim Malouf is not well known in the United States. It's a good reminder that just because you never heard of it doesn't mean it's not intensely meaningful to someone else, somewhere else. Anyway, getting back to that night in Montreux in 2017, Malouf didn't really need anyone at that point to anoint him or give him approval. Then again, for a boy whose life had been flipped, turned upside down by hearing Michael Jackson, maybe there was one person who could give him a little boost of confidence. Can you guess who? Well, man. Quincy. Malouf tells the story of watching Quincy Jones sitting off to the side of the stage at that Montreux concert and wondering, does he dig it or not? What does Q think about this? So when he walked off stage, he was thrilled to meet the man himself and hear those words. Man, that was real hip, you know what I'm saying? I never heard anything like that before. Okay, that's not the real original audio of Quincy Jones talking to Ibrahim Malouf. That's actually my wife. But Ibrahim will tell us the full story later. What I can tell you for real right now is that this month, Malouf released Capacity to Love, yet another highly collaborative, interactive project featuring appearances by, among others, De La Soul, Tank and the Bangas, Gregory Porter, Sharon Stone, and Charlie Chaplin. Yes, Charlie Chaplin. I bet you didn't see that one coming. This track from the record, called El Mundo, features DJ Tony Romero and Brazilian singer Flavia Coelho. Quero te convidar, vem ser uma vem cá curtir. A vida é muito curta, quero 
divertir Vamos passar o ano todo, todo no verão Música é cura, salva o seu coração É só você relaxar Só balançar Toque, 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 deixa a gente entrar Vem no Pampararão, vem pra casuar Capacity to Love might be Maloof's most overtly commercial statement in a long line of projects that seek to find common ground. Ultimately, I think he's satisfied not to find the perfect formula that will fully capture his thing. He seems content at this point to be able just to keep searching. And we talked recently about that search. Don't forget, third-story.com is the place to find the full archive, including conversations with other boundary-pushing international masterminds like Lionel Luecke, Andres Levine, Jorge Drexler, Jacques Schwarzbart, Noga Erez, and more. And also other trumpeters, including Michael Lenhart, Philip Lassiter, John Lampley, Philip Dizak, Tatum Greenblatt, Adam O'Farrell, Benny Benack III, and Amir El-Safar, who is incredibly another trumpeter who found his way to playing quarter-tonal Arabic maqam music and jazz on the trumpet. Patreon.com slash Third Story Podcast is the place to support this project as we keep searching. And of course, WBGO.org slash studios is where you will find all of WBGO's award-winning content, including this very podcast. Well, man, you're really floating my boat. <laughs> Today, I will also remind you, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts so that the almighty algorithm does not lose sight of what we're doing over here. Here's me and Ibrahim Malouf talking it down on Zoom recently. Hello, everyone. There he is. Yeah. How are you? Good. My phone just died five minutes ago. I'm not kidding. It, it just died. It's crazy. Five minutes ago. <laughs> I don't know what to do. It's crazy. Ibrahim, it is such a pleasure to meet you. It's an honor to meet you. You know, your phone just died leading up to this conversation, which I think maybe is a kind of a sign that's being sent to you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because, you know, as I speak to you, it's four o'clock in New York. It's 10 p.m. in France. Yeah. You've been touring. You're about to release a new record. You have orchestral concerts lined up in front of you for the next week, followed by a long tour of presentation of your new album. When I look on Spotify, I see at least two, maybe three soundtracks to films that were released this year that you scored, plus <laughs> an album that you made with Angelique Kidjo six months ago it was released, and now you're releasing another one. So maybe, you know, <laughs> finally your phone just said, I'm done, man. Don't call me anymore. Leave me alone. <laughs> you don't need me. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe... I don't know. <laughs> it's funny to see it this way, actually. It's interesting. <laughs> what is crazy is that the times we're living in are um, extremely interesting, you know, because we live so much faster than it used to be 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. And um, I, I'm really happy living today for these reasons. Like, like we have so many opportunities, you know, like we can... We can talk, seeing each other, even though we're like five or six thousand kilometers away. Uh, we we can record things. You know, I have this Zoom recorder. I can record things in the street, put it in my album, do stuff. Have this external batteries that let me travel for twenty four hours in a row. We live in very extraordinary uh, times, and. Uh, and that makes everything much faster, you know, composing. The times we're living in are extremely dense. Mm. You know, I think that is a real gift to believe 
that you are living in the right time for yourself. You know, I mean, yeah. that, you, that your historical reality aligns with whatever your passions are. And I can't help but think about the way your life began, both personally and creatively, because you belong to a long tradition, which is happening on a slow historical timeline, right? A generational timeline of musicians who are passing along traditional musical information to each other, the old way, the slow way. Yeah. And now you live in a very fast way. But I mean, maybe you could just talk about your initial, your start. It's very interesting actually to, to do a parallel between uh, the, um, the very slow transition between generations and the fast life that we have now. Uh, but, but just, uh, I think it's, it's interesting to think that I don't, it's not only me, it's the world that is like this. And, uh, you know, everything is much faster and I just adapt to the world <laughs> I'm living in. You know, I'm, I don't refuse it. I don't, I don't react against it because I could, you know, there's so many things that I don't like in this world, but I try to adapt, you know, to be in the same time that I'm living in, not to regret anything in a few years, you know, and not to say, ah, I should have done this. I should have done that. I, and, you know, I don't, I hate living in regrets, mm. right? So I come from a Lebanese family that have, that has traveled a lot uh, around the world. We are very much into culture, into literature, into um, anything that allows you to be totally free, mm. <laughs> you know, anything that uh, makes you feel free to express anything you have in mind or in your heart, you know? And um, so this is something that uh, was taught to me since I was a very, very small kid, mm. since I was a baby, you know, mm. uh, from day one, uh, the two rules in my family were studying and go as far as you can and learn as many things as life can tell you and teach you mm. and, and learn the codes uh, be number one in what you do uh, try to uh, focus on the um, excellence of what you have to do don't accept to be medium mm -hmm. don't accept to be in the middle uh, try to be the best of what you can do and what you can be and in another way the second part of the education i had was but always remember that you are free and you can do whatever you want and you can create whatever you want and you can be whatever you want. So those were like the two sides of my, I, I would say, education or mm -hmm. culture education. In an effort not to live in regret, like you don't want to regret not doing something, is there ever a risk that you might go too fast because you don't want to miss anything? Oh, yeah. But <laughs> when, when, when it's about life, when it's about your personal life, it can be risky. When it's about driving, it can be dangerous. When it's about uh, things that have to be, in a way, protected, I totally agree with this. Like, you cannot go too fast. But when it, goes, when it comes to culture, when it comes to languages, when it comes to the creative side of our life, there should not be any limit. This is what culture is made for. It's to go beyond anything we could imagine and that's why culture is always 
ahead of us. If you want to read future, just watch culture. Mm. Culture tells you everything that is going to happen in 10, 15, 50 years, you know, ahead of us. So, so I, I think that the, the role of culture is to always be ahead of us. And how can you be ahead? How can you create if you don't go faster than what you are able to do? And actually, there is even an example of this that I can, that illustrates what I'm telling you. When you are on a piano, for example, and you don't know how to play. You have never learned piano, right? And you go on a piano and you play things that don't mean anything. Actually, this could be something written by someone, but you don't even know that. And what your body was able to do, your culture doesn't know how to do. Mm. So if you go on a piano and you do something crazy and someone writes it on score, and you try to play it, you cannot play it because you, don't, you have never learned how to play that. So this means that your freedom in culture goes far beyond what you actually know. And that why, that's why culture is future when you are creative. So maybe this is a time now to talk about this new record then. I, I, I want to go backwards from there as well. But this new record, The Capacity yeah. to Love, seems like an opportunity for you to engage with a form of popular culture that it's not that it has eluded you because I can see that you've been flirting with it for a long time and that, you know, projects over the years with Oxmo Puccino or whatever, you know, you've always had a relationship with black music, with urban music, with rap, but this is a real statement of intent that you want to engage with popular sounds and uh, maybe assert yourself in that part of culture. That, that's actually right, because, but to understand this, if people want to understand why, for me, it is a statement in a way, and it is something new, you have to know where I come from. Like, I, I was raised in classical Western music and classical Arab music. So my both mother languages in, in, in music are classical musics, you know, and, and, and uh, until the age of eight or nine, I had never heard anything else than this, you know. And um, then life, TV, radio, you know, uh, made me hear things that I wasn't even imagining poss being possible. Like, you know, rhythms, sounds, even dancing, like Michael Jackson's dancing and stuff, you know, all this pop culture and and rap and, and jazz and all this. So my ears and my eyes started to open wider the range of what music can be but I, but since i was raised in a classical world there were so many codes around me that that needed to be followed classical music and classical cultures all over the world and all over the time were always cultures that needed to be under codes right that you cannot do any any I, you cannot play just any idea when you play classical music. It's it's there are so many rules. Mm -hmm. That's why actually classical music is so traditional, right? And so conservative. And that's okay. You know, it's because it's made to be this way, right? So uh, when I started to open to other things, I understood that one day I need to be able to mix my musical education and the rules I've been raised into, into something that is 
being created now, not something that was created a century or three centuries ago or even more, like Baroque music and stuff. I wanted my music to belong to, to today. So all my 15 albums, all my 14 albums, I mean, all the ones I did before this one, you know, I was trying to find a way to mix all the musics that I love into one thing. So I was so free, you know, to create and create and create. But after my 14th album, I was like thinking, man, I've tried to do some things with the street culture, you know, with, with hip hop and with this kind of, this art that, that is not exactly mine, but I love it and I want to go further now. Since it's not easy to do pop culture or to do pop music or hip hop, people people think that you know. What, I hate this uh, uh, um, word "easy listening." I hate this because nothing is easy. Mm. Nothing is easy, and and uh, uh, people who work in the music industry, they know that if you want to do a hit. Man, you know, I, I composed a symphony. I'm going to play it in like 10 days. Believe me, I've never been able to compose a huge hit. It's, it's, it's really much more difficult to do this than to compose a symphony, <laughs> right? So, so I, sometimes I'm like, it's easy to say that it's easy to do it. It's much easier, right? So I want to go, I'm not saying this is what I did, but I want to go somewhere that is close to what people consider as being popular yeah and try to compose something that goes into the the codes of today but it has to be my music it can't be you know totally i'm not, I'm not gonna try to do kendrick Lamar music or or, or jay-z's music or you know i, I want to do mine and i'm and i'm, and I'm a trumpet player I'm, I'm not a rapper right but I want to associate my music and and try to go towards this hip hop culture and the urban culture that really uh, moves me and that I really, really listen to a lot and try to do it my way. So I had to do this now because I'm not going to do this when I'm 75, right? Mm. How old were you when you left Lebanon? My parents used to go, how do you say, back and forth yeah. for, ye- for years between... Um, one or two years before I was born until I was five, uh-huh. approximately. And when I was four or five years old, I had to go to school. So they settled in, in France and in Paris. Because you described this period of being seven or eight years old when finally the outside world had to penetrate the walls of your home. They couldn't keep it out anymore. Your parents could no longer isolate you from the popular culture yeah. around you. Yeah, but it's it doesn't come from... Uh, any conservative point of view or something like this. It's just that my parents were worried that once the war, the civil war was over, we wouldn't want or couldn't even culturally be back home, right? So they they wanted us to speak Arabic. They wanted us to listen uh, Arabic music. They wanted us to be Lebanese people so that when, when the war is over, we can adapt to the Lebanese society easily. But it didn't really happen this way since, you know, the war lasted much longer and uh, it actually ended. I was 11. So they had to 
you know, settle in Paris so that we go to school. And once we were 11, 12 years old, it was too late to yes. go back to Lebanon. Well, in fact, what you describe is exactly the opposite, which is adapting to a number of inputs and maybe even shifting a little bit or switching your sensibility according to, you know, what was around you, whether or not it was the the kids of your generation in Paris or your parents at home. You describe this struggle of making all these records where you're trying to integrate all of your influences into one project, but, you know, maybe that's not possible. Maybe there is no global project that could possibly express all of these different influences. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I actually think that uh, when people ask me to describe my music, without trying to be pretentious or anything, I think in a very humble way, I don't know how to explain what I do. So, so most of the time I say, maybe when it will be over uh, for me, you know, you will be listening to all the albums and, and all together will give a, mm. will give a picture of, of uh, what I tried to do, you know, and I consider myself as being an, a researcher, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying things. Each one of my albums is like an experimentation and I always hope that it means something, but I don't even know if it does. You know, you at, you quickly said at one point, well, I'm a trumpet player. I'm not a rapper. I'm a trumpet player. And you certainly are a trumpet player. There's no question about it. But as I look at the collection of your projects, I see that the trumpet is almost a way of traveling for you. It's a, it's a vehicle for you to be able to do this research. You know, I wonder about the balance for you between dealing with the trumpet, which is a demanding instrument, and then also just using the trumpet as a way to walk in the next door and connect with whoever you're going to connect with. Well, let me tell you something that might shock you, but I hated trumpet for so many years. My father was a great teacher and he taught me, he, he was able, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to say that, but it's, it's kind of a miracle that I'm actually a trumpet player today mm -hmm. because I, I didn't like trumpet at all. But he was able to teach someone like me who doesn't like trumpet how to become a professional trumpeter, even though I didn't like it. And that's, I know, it's weird. To, yeah. It's even a little bit awkward, I guess, for people who like trumpet to hear me saying that. And I'm sorry for that. But it's the truth. And that's actually why now I think I'm a good trumpet teacher, because I hated it. And now, and now I really like it, right? Um, hmm. And I know why I like it. I know why. I know precisely why I like it. And uh, and you're right. I use it more as a tool to create my music more than to actually become a trumpeter or to be a trumpeter. The way trumpet is usually, uh, um, usually, not, of course, there are many people who don't use it this way, but most people who think of trumpet or who, who play trumpet use it to play loud notes, high notes, fast uh, notes and stuff like this. And this is something I didn't like at all, ever. I never liked that. Uh, it, I've been asked to do it for the classical trumpet competitions who are somehow, you know, championships of trumpet. So it's, it's not about music. It's, it's just about uh, virtuosity and, you know, and, and stuff like this. And, and you did these and you won them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but this is not music, yeah, right? Yeah. It's not music. It has nothing to do with music. But I did it, and I actually liked it at some point, you know, because since I was winning, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I, I was happy with that, you know. So it kind of pushed me to understand why, you know, I was doing it. 
you know, because you do it mechanically, like automatically without even knowing why. But my father gave me this and I practiced it and I'm good at it and it's okay and let's do it. I don't like it, but it's okay, you know. So when I was 22, 23, I had this questioning, you know, this uh, existential questioning, like, okay, okay, wait a second. I'm 22. I won the competitions. I wanted to win, you know. Okay, I, I did what I had to do. Now what? Is, is it what I'm going to do in my entire life? Mm-hmm. Hell no. Definitely not. This is not what I'm going to do. So thank you very much. Thank you, Dad. Thank you, Trumpet. I put it in the box. I closed the box. I put it in my <laughs> you know, closet. And I was, okay, now I'm going to do music. If ever I do something, it's going to be music. So I started composing uh, and I wanted to become a movie soundtrack composer because I loved movies. And I used to go to the cinema like six or seven times a day sometimes. Mm, mm. I loved that. It's, it's really something that I was really, really, really passionate about. I started composing and then there was something missing. You know, there was something missing. It's like living with someone you think you don't like at all, but then this person is not here anymore. And there's something missing in you, right? So I took the trumpet back. <laughs> and this is where I understood that I, w- I maybe had something to do with this trumpet, yes. which is giving it a place in my world in order to mean something into my music. Like, like, like the only thing I knew really how to play was trumpet. So come on, <laughs> you can't be so dumb. At some point, this is the only thing you know, you really know. It's trumpet and playing trumpet. So I took this back, this instrument, and I started adapting my playing to my compositions. And that's when, mm. you know, my passion met trumpets. And this is when I understood that it's, it was going to be something that was going to be useful for me. So in terms of adapting your playing to your compositions, I mean, you have a very soft, round sound, a sweet sound, not a big brassy sound. As you say, you know, you've had to do it. But in the jazz tradition, we might compare it to Chet Baker or something like this, a a very sweet sound. What did it mean for you to adapt your sound to your composition? I, I never really played in a way that I didn't like. Yeah. You know, but... I had to adapt to what was being asked to me, which was traditional trumpet sound for classical music. Yeah. I was adapting, like I was like playing a role. It's like, it's like uh, playing Shakespeare or yeah. I don't know, like classical things. I mean, it's not you, you're doing it. You're doing it pretty well, obviously, you know, and you're a good actor. You're doing exactly what you've been asked to do. But this is not the way you want to act as an actor, as a as your it's your job, and you want to do it with all your heart. You cannot be acting like Shakespeare pieces all the time. It has to be you. Yeah. Right. So this is what I changed. I I stopped playing a role, and I started playing who I am. Yeah. Your father invented a four valve trump in order to play microtonal music to play maqams and uh, play the traditional music. How does that influence who you are, the music that you make and you're playing? Where, where does that integrate into your, into your music? When I told you that um, 
when I was 22, 23, I understood that this instrument might be a good tool for me to express uh, um, something in my music. It's precisely when I actually realized that the invention of my father was way more than just a, an extra valve on a trumpet playing quarter tones. It was more like a bridge between the cultures that I loved. How to play, you mentioned Chet Baker, for example, and I love Chet Baker. I, I, I definitely don't consider myself as being as good as him, uh, and especially not for his sound and all this, but imagine you wanna play like Chet Baker, but with some other influences that actually belong to who you are, the, the Middle Eastern influences. And, and you want to mix this with some pop and you want to do this or that and blah, 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 blah. So if, if your roots are missing, then there's something wrong. Yeah. You know, you, you cannot cook a great meal with all things that you really, really think that would go all together without bringing the main dish your mother taught you. <laughs> You're right. So it, it has to be somewhere into this. And since I used to sing maqams all, all my childhood, and this is classical Arab music, I've been drinking this every day. I was, I was, I was breathing this every day. So naturally, this, this had to take part into this big piece that I was, I was, I was trying to, to create. And, uh, and that's actually one of the reasons why I decided to play trumpet again. You know, thinking about this period when it was, uh, maybe 20 years ago, I wonder if it aligns with a connection with Lhasa de Sela and how Lhasa showed you a way to engage with popular music. I'm so happy you're mentioning her because uh, there are not so many people who know about Lhasa. Lhasa is, uh, was a genius. For me, one of the most powerful and beautiful souls and uh, I think that when she left us, when she passed away, we lost an extremely beautiful gift that uh, music had to offer us. And um, Lassa was an American uh, Mexican gypsy and a real gypsy. I mean, yeah. she used to travel in caravans with her fa father and mother and sisters and brothers for years before she decided to settle in Canada, in Montreal. She started singing very soulful music. And um, we happened to meet because she wanted to work with this uh, amazing cello player in France. And uh, I was a friend of his and he wanted me to try to put my trumpet into this new collaboration he was doing with her. And uh, for some reason, the collaboration between them didn't really work out. But she called me and she said, but Ibrahim, I don't wanna miss this opportunity to do something with you because I liked what you brought to this collab. She was working between Canada and France. So she was back to Canada and she said, could you please come with me and we could record something in, in Montreal. And that was one of the first times I was actually uh, uh, being told that I could actually play free totally free, uh, you know, into, into the album of someone. And she, she brought me from, uh, from Paris and I was in the studio in Montreal and she, they used to play me music and tell me, 
just play what comes out from your head. Just do it. Just do it. Just do what you want to do on this, you know. And she, she, they weren't actually telling me, okay, could you play this line, this note? Uh, they were just telling me, what do what you do, right? And that was the first time. Uh, that was the first time anyone tells me to do that, yeah. <laughs> you know. So she opened something in me. She gave me more confidence in the fact that when I was improvising, my improvisations could mean something to someone else than me, mm. <laughs> right? So uh, that really helped me a lot to find out somehow how my trumpet yes. could mix with what kind of music I had in mind, right? Like how to mix it. And she was doing oh, her second album, The Living Road, yes. is, is, is a masterpiece, really. also mentioned earlier about your relationship with the cinema and how influential it was to go see film. I'm not surprised because you have a very cinematic disposition. You you love to present the music in very cinematic ways. I saw a video of you sitting on the edge of the amphitheater in Nîmes <laughs> playing trumpet and guitar with maybe a drone flying around you. I mean, it was yeah. one, of, <laughs> one of the most dramatic live music videos I think I've ever seen, you know, and, and it requires somebody who loves to present music in a cinematic way. I love cinema, really, and every time I do music and uh, each one of my albums, I actually build it in a way as if it was a movie, you know, and even like this one, the, 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 the last one, Capacity to Love, uh, I start the album with the voice of Charlie Chaplin in uh, the movie, The Dictator. In this world there's room for everyone and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls. Mm-hmm. And I closed the, the album and I finished the album uh, with Sharon Stone uh, who actually wrote the text for mm. this last track, for the track called Our Flag. You've torn our hearts, our flag, it cannot mend. Other countries' trust was ours on land. When will they ever believe us again? And whose money do you think you spend? Stop pushing, stop pushing. Stop pushing, stop pushing, stop pushing us. The way I start the album and the way I close it means a lot to me. Uh, The message I'm trying to say every time in each album, but also in Capacity to Love, the message is, um, uh, how do you say, the the, the way I want people to get the message needs to be presented in a way that makes you want to listen. Right? It's, it's like, if I, if I do the metaphor again, if you invite people to your house, you have to prepare them. The setup of the table, 
there should be decorations and stuff and candles maybe lights and mm. you know some flowers maybe and decorations and you know i don't know what what kind of decorations you, you know <laughs> each one of us has yeah. his own ones yeah. and then there's the starters and the starters has to make you start mm. it can't be a big starter the starter has to be small because you're starting right and and there is a story behind this and when you finish the meal once you have eaten there is the conclusion there's the dessert and maybe the coffee and blah 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 so all this has there is there there is a story every time it can't be just boom right so uh and this works for everything actually it works for, even for this interview Yes. There are some there are some subjects that you decide to start with and some you decide to finish with and in the middle you're going to talk about some things. So everything is designed in a way that it tells you something. It tells something. So for me cinema is everywhere. Mm. Cinema is everywhere in our lives, you know, even when I wake up in the morning and the way I close my day and I go to bed, the, the whole day is like a movie. and mm-hmm. we don't even know what's going to happen right and uh, so so um and if you go further even life is like a movie and blah 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 right so in my albums i try to reproduce the exact same pattern which is we start something we develop it and we close it and we shut down the, the, the you know we we clo- we close the the whole story yes. this for me is very cinematic and i and i like that And what about in your performances do you approach it the same way when you put a concert together? Absolutely, always. It's it's even uh, more accurate for concerts. And actually I'm always surprised uh like for sometimes there are artists especially in jazz music by the way they just go on stage they play and then it's all the time this 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 for one hour or one hour 30 or two hours and they say thank you thank you and they leave and I'm like Come on, you're such an amazing musician. Come on, tell us a story. I need this story, you know. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm just listening to random improvs. So, so in my concert, in my shows, I try to bring this a lot. Like like how to start, uh, what's the next one, what's the third one, uh, what happens, then they need to happen something at some point that surprises people. And then so the <laughs> all this uh drama thing in 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 the concert is very important to me. Yes. You know this um commentary about jazz I think is absolutely accurate and you know I'm even careful to talk about jazz with you because I think jazz is a very heavy word and you know some people love to carry it on their back and other people prefer not to. I don't I feel that from you, but yeah. I think whatever the music is that you're playing maybe the aspect of it that is jazz is that it's inclusive and i think that although jazz musicians are often often not particularly good at telling their own story to their audience they're good at playing the music but maybe not good at explaining or helping to make the audience complicit in this journey that they're going on but one thing that jazz has allowed is for all kinds of musicians to bring their backgrounds to it the story that you tell of being able to find the bridge through the four valve trumpet i think is a jazz story in that you found a way to integrate all of these influences into popular music of course jazz was popular music at at a time and you know i know that you have a show on tsf which is a kind of a, a way of <laughs> saying okay i'm not jazz but 
I'm also maybe a little jazz related. Look, I, I love jazz. I have so much respect for jazz people, jazz musicians who actually are most of them amazing musicians and amazing ambassadors of the instruments they're playing and of everything. On another way, there is something that scares me in jazz. You know, there's something that scared me a lot and that still scares me a little bit. And that's why I'd rather say I'm not a jazz man, even though I think that part of me is. Yeah. But I'd, I'd rather say, let's not talk about it. Why? Because, you know, I, I, I've been, as I said in the beginning of this um, talk, yeah. that um, I come from classical music and, and classical Arabic music and classical Western music. And these two cultures are so fundamentalists. They are very conservative. And every time you try to do something different, they don't even want to hear about it. I'm not, I'm not saying everybody. I'm just doing a general picture. Most of the times, people look at you like, come on, this is, this is not classical music. Yeah. This is not Arab classic music. This is, this is something else. It's all right. Do it. But don't call it classical music. Don't call it classical Arab music. Don't call it classical Western music. This is something else. You want to do it, do it. You're free to do it, but don't call it like this. And at some point, I started to hear this in jazz. Hmm. I love jazz. I think that for classical music, classical Western music and classical Arab music, it's hopeless. But I don't think in jazz it's hopeless. I think we still have some hope yeah. because it's, it's a, a new culture in terms of history. Yes. It's very new. It's a baby. Jazz is a baby. Come on. Right. So you cannot put jazz in a box and say, oh, jazz is this and only this. Otherwise, it's going to be like classical music. It's going to be a museum music. And I don't want it to become a museum music. So in order to not create any more <laughs> tension in the jazz world and specifically in France, mm. where I had to struggle with this many times, mm. And sometimes with people who were actually extremely violent when it came to me and what I'm doing and if it's jazz or not jazz and blah, 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 blah. It started to become too big for my little shoulders uh, as, a, as a musician who just wants to play music and enjoy his life. I decided to say, thank you so much. I loved being part of this family. I'm going to go now. Goodbye. Thank you very much. And to show how much I love jazz, I keep some links <laughs> with the jazz world, you know, and uh, I keep sometimes doing concerts that would be a little bit more in the jazz area. I keep having this show in TSF Jazz. I keep, you know, I keep some of my musics, you know, not too far from that world to say to everyone, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not so far. I'm still around, you know, but, <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm just outside of this, yes. you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be in trouble. I don't want to put anyone in trouble. Thank you. You know, but believe me, um, I had to struggle so much, you know, especially when I started to sell many, 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 many albums. And uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, not I'm not Doja Cat or The Weeknd, but still, for jazz, it was a lot, right? And and I started to do big concerts, and 
And you know, how can you be a jazz man if you play in front of 50,000 50, people? Come on, this can't be jazz. This is, jazz is supposed to be in a club with people struggling to have you know, a few dollars to be able to pay their rent. Otherwise, you're not a jazz man. And that was a big thing, you know, and I started to say, okay, come on, guys. I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to be ashamed of what I'm doing. I'm just going to say goodbye. And, and I, I just left. You know, you talk about playing in front of 50,000 people. And I have to say, when I see the videos of you, I mean, I, I've known your name for a long time, but I didn't understand how successful you had become because, you know, the United States, it turns out there is a physical and sometimes a kind of psychic ocean between us, you know, and... <laughs> So you played. But it's okay. But it's okay. It, it's okay. No, it, as a matter of fact, I'm always delighted and happy to discover something <laughs> like that. You know, like I know you played in New York recently, and you played at Le Poisson Rouge, which for you these days is a very small venue. You play in very big places <laughs> in Europe and in the rest of the world. And in New York, you came and you played in a what would be considered a, a great showcase venue for artists in New York. But uh, but believe me, I'm I'm. My, I have my feet on, on the ground. I know, you know, I, I know success doesn't mean anything at all. And, and I'm grateful that I have these opportunities to play in Le Poisson Rouge and to do all those things because, uh, first of all, it, it's okay and it's good, actually, to restart from nothing, you know, to restart from scratch because it's, it's, it's a good way to question yourself and to restart and to see, okay, am I, you know, am I as good as people are telling me, yeah. I have to maybe, because you know, sometimes when um, there is something that we call success, you might sometimes forget some fundamental things. You know, mm -hmm. like uh, you can be blurred, you say, blurred yes. by success and by people clapping and shouting and stuff and, and stuff like that, but then, you might forget why you are doing all this because you might like it, you know, like the fact that there are many people in front of you when you're playing on, on a big stage. So it's really, a, a, it's really interesting to restart from nothing. And, and I, I feel really grateful to have to prove to myself uh, that um, everything is not granted. And it's not because you are doing well somewhere that people like you everywhere, you know, and you have to, you know, you, even my music ha has uh, to improve in a way, you know, to, to adapt to another audience. And, uh, and I like this. It's like a, it's like a challenge. And I, I, I hope it will um, work out. I, I really hope that people will enjoy my music, you know, but, um, but, Nothing is sure. Nothing is granted. So, you know, you say with success, you might forget why you're doing it, and I guess I have to ask you, why are you doing it? <laughs> um, well, let me tell you that I think I, I I ask myself this every day. Yeah. And my answer, ninety nine point ninety nine percent of the times, is that I do music to be connected, to be connected to people, to share something powerful you know life is short and being on earth or not being on earth mm. is not going to change so much mm -hmm. nor the world nor you nor anyone else and it will only affect people if you are a lovely person if you are 
uh, a nice one, you know, or if you are a terrible one. Yeah. So I, I try to do my best <laughs> to, to, you know, bring joy and, and, and enjoy my time and um, be connected to people, be connected to my times, try to make people suffer a little bit less mm. through music. And um, because let's, let's be honest, I mean, our lives is like 80% of struggling and 20% of pleasure, right? Mm. I think this is why I do music. How do you think about the people you want to work with? You know, I mean, as you've set yourself free from being a jazz musician, you've expanded your ability to work with all kinds of people who are jazz or not jazz. So that could include jazz musicians, that could include Marcus Miller and John Batiste and Harold Lopez Nusa and, you know, all, all these wonderful practitioners of jazz and its various dialects, but it can also expand to work with hip hop artists and the Kronos Quartet. And, you know, it's, it's very expansive. What are you doing to think about who you want to work with? What is it like as you consume culture and think about how it might fit with what you do? The same way I, I try to connect to people, I try to connect to arts. I try to connect to everything that moves me, that talks to my guts, mm -hmm. you know, to my heart. So whether the artist is famous or not, if it moves me, if what she or he plays or writes or sings moves me, I'm going to love it, you know. I'm going to love, you know, sharing something. So the same way on this album, I... I was moved for years by De La Soul because I loved the rap they used to do and they still do actually but I mean I used to listen to uh, Wu-Tang Clan and De La Soul for years when I was young you know they they are part of my childhood and they join you on this new record that's life you gotta taste a little bad with the good as you should you might you might need a little quiet time place inside your culture in another way there is this new guy his name is dear silas he's very new i mean not so many people know him or know about him and and i love the way he raps i woke up feeling good feeling great because can't nobody stop me told my enemies i'm protected come and try to pop me i saw some dance on negativity and they call me poppy dripping sauce everywhere that i walk was getting sloppy you know what's crazy got wings ain't never needed my feet on top of a mountain with it still ain't close to my peak double use at the double use only thing i repeat you wanted me to go lose i know you try to defeat but you can't you want to infiltrate well it might be so you know de la soul and dear silas both of them had something I wanted to share with them. You know, I wanted to share something with them. And um, so every time I'm moved by artists, and even if it's about dancing, even if it's about, of course, uh, cinema, even if it's about um, fine arts, even if it's about uh, anything, you know, that, that could move me, you know, I, I want to I wanna meet with them and collaborate with them. You know, there is, uh, for example, I, I, when I was working on my album called 40 Melodies, yes. uh, you know, I was just like anyone, you know, listening to music, doing, you know, going on internet, watching things, you know, 
discovering new artists. And then suddenly I discovered this, uh, how, how do you call the, we call claquette, like this tap, tap dancers. Yes. And her name is Sarah Reich. And I loved what she was doing. I thought she was so interesting, you know, and I was like, okay, I'd love to do a duet with Sarah. Yeah. So I, I I called her, I suggested it to her, and she said, wow, this is the first time a trumpet player asked me to do something, let's do it. You know, it touches my heart and and my emotions. I like collaborating, and this is how I build my musical family. What do you think about the idea of world music? You know, I, I, I talk to some people who have a problem with it or they, they don't love it because it seems like, well, what aren't we all in the world? And on the other hand, when I see, you know, you pull together people like you, you, you interact freely with African artists and Brazilian artists and American artists and French artists. And it does maybe feel more authentically like it applies to what you're doing than to many other world music artists, because it's music from all over the world. But, but what do you feel about that? I, I have nothing against the fact that we have to name things to be able to explain. I mean, you want to eat a pizza, would you go to a place that sells sushi? No, right? So at some point, people who want to listen to this kind of music, to world music, they need to have somewhere where to find it. So we have to call it something at some point. <laughs> um, in another way, it's a limited definition. And I can, I, I can understand why it offends some people too. You are Indian, you are Afri African. You are South American, you are from East Europe, you are uh, playing Yiddish music, you are playing, I don't know what, like all kinds of music. And people say world music, like boom, like all together. It's like people from abroad, yes. you know? Yes. And so, so I, I, I can understand why it's offending. It doesn't mean that if we put you in a box that you have to always stay in this box. No, nobody f forbids you to get out of it. Well, you know, that's your story. Yeah, so, so if you accept to be in the box, so you can't complain anymore, right? Yeah. You, have to, you have to do something to get out of it. So my choice was to say, yeah, I'm a world, world music artist. I'm okay with that, but I'm not only that. Yeah. In the same way, I actually like when people say I'm a jazzman, but I say I'm not only a jazzman. Yeah. People say I'm an Arabic musician because I come from Lebanon. Ha, 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 of course, but I'm not only that, man. You know, I'm, uh, I used to play classical music for 25 years, and uh, people say, oh, yeah, it's the classical guy, the, the guy who played trumpets, the, the weird trumpet, but he's a classical guy. Yeah, but I'm not only that. Mm -hmm. So every time people put you in something, you don't have to say no, but you don't have to accept to be only this. That's the, that's the only difference, if you want, that, that makes me accept to be a world music artist or a jazz artist. I love that. Before we conclude, you challenged me in our conversation because you, you suggested that we will reach some inevitable conclusion yeah. 
<laughs> and I hope that we do. But I want to ask you about the relationship with Quincy Jones. You talk about how you can be very famous in one place and not very famous somewhere else. And you were discovered by Quincy Jones well into your career. I love this idea that you were discovered, but you're already very famous when you're discovered. You were just <laughs> discovered by him because he didn't know you before that. But tell me about the relationship with Quincy. The thing is that Quincy, I think, felt, and him and his team, uh, because, you know, he doesn't take decisions alone. He has a team. And so so Quincy Jones and, and the team of Quincy Jones Productions, they felt that there was something that we could do in the United States also, that it, that it didn't have to stay in Europe and in the Middle East and blah, blah, blah. That something, you know, since I'm not a singer, Trumpet is inter it, it, it's an international language that I'm playing. It's not a specific language for France or Turkey or Lebanon or you know or Middle East or something. So when we met, it was in 2017 at the Montreux Jazz Festival, and maybe you know it, but um, Quincy loves this festival and he's yes. there every every year. So he likes to go and listen to you know all kinds of artists and see and and take the the pulse of the world, right? <laughs> and that's what makes him so special also, that he's always interested in what and everything that happens mm -hmm. in music, you know, and everywhere. So he's very curious. <laughs> so uh, uh, he came to listen to my concert. Most likely, I guess, someone told him, you should go listen, right? So uh, when he was on the stage and I was almost going to start my show, I was looking at him like, oh my God, Quincy Jones is going to listen to my show. This is unbelievable. So I went to talk to some guy who knows him and I said, man, is that real? Please pinch me. Mm -hmm. I'm, 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 yeah. I might... and, and he told me, well, man, don't be overexcited. Usually Quincy, you know, he listens like 10 or 15 minutes and then he leaves and he goes and he listens to other shows. And I said, but how can I know if he likes it or not? How can I, after the show, how can I know if he liked it or not? And this guy like stopped like this and he said, well, there might be something that tells you. I said, what it is? And he said, usually what I noticed those last years is like when Quincy likes a show, he orders food huh. and he stays. I was like, oh, uh, okay. You know, <laughs> so I started the show and, you know, <laughs> Every two, three minutes, I was like, just checking, is he still here, you know, when I'm playing? And he was there, and he was there, and he was there, and blah, blah, blah. And after like 20, 25 minutes, I thought, okay, I mean, he's going to leave for sure, you know. And, but he was still here. And, and at some point, I saw a huge plate of sushis arriving on, st <laughs> on, on the side of the stage. And I was like, oh, yes! You know? <laughs> So, so I, I, after the show, I went to see him and I yeah. was like, oh, Quincy, I'm, I'm so honored that, that you came to my show and that you stayed. And he was, he was like, yeah, man, great mm. job. And then he started talking about like, what's your sign? Where, uh -huh. Are you, you know, like Scorpion? Oh, I like Scorpions uh -huh. and blah, blah, blah. It was, it was really, you know, thoughtful and, yeah. and, and, and full of um, good energy and all this. And after we talked like for maybe 45 minutes or one hour, I don't remember, he said, call my team and we have to work together. We have to do something. And I was like, wow, is he really saying this? Like he says it to everybody or does he really want to work on something together? So I called the team and they said, no, he, he really want to work with you. He really want, wants to push you, especially in the US and work with you. So 
if you are ready for that, let's go. And I was like, oh my God, that's crazy. So, so this is how he started. And, and, he, and you know, he has a serious input in everything hmm. because uh, even if sometimes he doesn't say it or he doesn't express it, sometimes he does. And most of the times he doesn't. But the only fact that he's around, it makes you try to do your best because you don't want to disappoint him, right? So that's a huge input. <laughs> yeah, that's a massive input. Yeah. Was the United States something that was interesting to you before that? I mean, you obviously had no problem with work, and the United States is difficult to conquer, I guess, to enter. You know, I could imagine that you would say at some point, you know, I don't need it. It's okay if I if if it doesn't come to me. No, no, it's not true. I, I do need it, and I would love, you know, but I'm I'm not a. Uh, I don't see things this way, yeah. you know. I I don't put in my head, okay, I have this thing. I want to do the American dream. I want to travel to the United States and become a star in the United States and blah, blah, blah. I don't think this way. I really feel that if people like it, it's going to be crazy. It's going to be so cool, you know. If people don't like it, I'm not going to push them to like it. Yeah. So, you know, it's like it's like if I, if I do a metaphor again, because <laughs> I like metaphors, as you can see. Yes. Uh, <laughs> It's like if I live in a place, you know, where people like me and I'm enjoying my time and there's this huge building where people are having great time, you know, and hmm. and I'm not sure if I knock on the door, people are going to accept me. And what happened now is that there is someone in this big, big building that liked me mm -hmm. and said, man, come on, come, come and spend some time with us. You know, I, he opened the door and, and right now, I'm in the hall, right? I haven't visited the first, nor the second, nor the third floor, nor the 150 floors, you know, something. <laughs> I'm just in the hall right now. And people are saying, they're looking at me and some of them are saying, wow, we, we could be friends with him. He, he's, he seems to be nice. And some people are looking at, no, I don't know. Let's see, you know. Nobody said he has nothing to do here and nothing said, oh man, you're so cool. Come on to the last floor. Nobody. So it's just, uh, you know, something I, I would love to spend more time in this huge building. Let's let time, you yeah. know, do its work. If it doesn't work, I'll, I'll go back home and that's it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't really know of many artists in the United States who have a kind of career like you have in Europe and uh, in the Middle East. You know, I don't know of that many instrumental artists who have popular success on that level. And I think maybe part of what you can do for us is to remind us that you can have a popular uh, musical experience that is both sophisticated and challenging and also at the heart of it is an instrument like the trumpet, is an instrumental approach. Well, let's, let's hope that many people think the same way. <laughs> you know, but I had have, I have this um, bad experience, like, 15 or 17 years ago, there was this uh, conference in the, in New York called APAP. Yeah. Oh yeah. And you know, APAP and, and, you know, I was, I think I had, at that time I had only two or three albums, but I used to do, it's not 15 years, like 12 years or something like this. And uh, I went to APAP because some friends of mine told me, man, if you want to do something in the U S in, in the U S market, this is the door you have to take. This is where you have to go. And I was like, you know, let's try. I mean, let's go and meet people. And uh, 
once I was at the APAP, I spent there three days. Mm -hmm. The first day I was full of energy. I was very optimistic. <laughs> I went there and I was like, hi, everyone, you know, like, oh, hi, my name is Ibrahim. I play trumpet. I do this and this and that. And people are looking at, you know, they were looking like, who is this guy? I've never heard of him. He's, he's, it's bullshit. He's, he's trumpet playing in front of thousands of people. Come on. He, he must be a just a random guy trying to, you know, make it in the U.S. And nobody really, like, really got interested in, in what I was saying. The second day, I was like, okay, maybe I shouldn't tell them, you know, I should just go and play them the music or something. And mm -hmm. so I tried to meet some people and I said, this is my records. This is, uh, I would love you to listen to this. And they said, oh, thank you so much with a big smile. They take it and they put it in bag where there's like 40 others. Albums. And I was like, okay, nobody's going to listen to this, you know? So the third day I, mm -hmm. I wasn't, this optimistic anymore. I didn't have my CDs anymore. I gave them all. Yeah. I already talked to most people and I was saying to them already that I was doing concerts and shows and I would like them to be interested in, you know, to, to see if they are interested in my music and all this. I already knew everyone. I was looking at everyone and I stayed like maybe one hour the third day. I was looking at everyone. I was like, oh my God, this is too big for me. Nobody is going to be interested in this. So maybe it's not time. Maybe it's not for me. You know, it's, if I take the metaphor again, it's as if I was knocking on the door of this huge building. I opened the door and was trying to say, um, excuse me, uh, um, is there, a, a, and nobody's listening. Like they're just passing by and nobody's looking at me. That was the feeling I had at, at APAP 12 or 13 years ago. So now I feel so, again, I, I feel blessed, you know, and so grateful because someone Yes. looked at me and said man come on come yes. on let's 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 share something together let's share a meal or something you know so we'll see yeah i said that when i moved to new york too i moved to new york 17 years ago and i said for the first year i said i just want to know where's the door where's the front door to this city somebody show me <laughs> i know it's here i'm here but how do i d exactly what you described you know yeah <laughs> but i i love that when you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that these outside sounds came into your world when you were seven or eight years old. You know, one of the major influences that you described was the dancing of Michael Jackson. And so it's kind of beautiful to think that all these years later, Quincy Jones is the one who sees you, the one who I know. Brought, the, brought that music to us. And he's the one that opens the door for you to come in. Yeah, yeah, I know. And it's crazy. And when I said to my family, guess what, <laughs> guys, <laughs> Quincy, they were like, what they they first they first thought that I was really being crazy, you know, yeah. and, yeah. and I said, "No, I promised you, it's true." Ibrahim yeah. <laughs> Malouf, it's such a wonderful uh, opportunity to get to know you. Thank you for taking time, and I wish you all the best of luck and success with this new record. Thank you so much, and I just want to say one last thing. I released an album with Angelique Kijo. It's, it's called Queen of Sheba, and I'm so so uh, proud that we have we that we did this collaboration i'm a huge fan of hers and i was uh, i was really feeling so 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 uh, lucky and grateful to be able to collaborate with this uh, huge artist uh, angelique so i just wanted to mention this also that uh, people uh, could also listen to this album and, and discover this uh, this beautiful project I love that record that you made with her. And and I asked myself when I saw that you released it in July, I think, and now you're releasing another one. I mean, is it difficult for you to 
remind people that you made more than one statement this year. You know, it's difficult <laughs> to promote two records at the same time. Yeah, it's it's some it's sometimes it's a bit confusing, and that's why I like to remind people I don't want my album to shade the Queen of Sheba because I'm so proud of this album. You know, it's yeah. it's not a question of needing to mention it or something, yeah. but it's more like I'm, I'm I don't want it I don't want it to be a second like another thing yeah. that I'm not talking about. I'm really so proud of this album Queen of Sheba, and I I really believe it's one of my um, maybe because Angelique is with me on this album. I think it's one of the best ones I've done in these last years. And and I'm really proud of it. I'm, I'm really, really, really very proud of this album. And I hope that um, that people are going to listen to, to this album too. I know this interview was about my new album. No, no, this interview is about I, you. I, I really don't believe that interviews are, are meant to be about any one thing. You know, I, I really think the interview is about you wherever you are right now. Thank you. And right now where you are is in Paris and it's now 11.15 p.m. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this only shows me that you are full of energy and spirit that you chose to do this interview at 11 o'clock at night. But fortunately you were not interrupted by any ringing of your phone because your phone is broken. It was dead. <laughs> My phone is dead. And, and, and usually when I'm, when I have the, the possibility to do interviews, you know, my, yeah. my, my wife sends me email, like messages and like, hurry up, yeah. hurry up. <laughs> you, you're too long, hurry up. You know, now she cannot do anything. I'm, I'm, I'm free. <laughs> well, please tell her thank you for uh, letting us hold you for an hour. And um, I wish you all the best of luck. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, Leo. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. There he was, my friends, Ibrahim Malouf. Did he ever end up getting a new phone? Let's assume that he did. I'll be back again in your headspace before you know it. Until then, say it with me. I'll talk to you soon. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org slash studios.